Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Mary Lynn Pitts and Laura Malt-Schneiderman, authors of Kaufman's. Marilyn Pitts and Laura Malt-Schneiderman are the authors of Kaufman's, the family that built Pittsburgh's famed department store. Why did you decide to write a book about a department store? Well, we didn't so much decide to write a book about a department store to begin with. Um, in the beginning, I, I, I just happened to notice a lot of signs around the Jewish Community Center, Center in Squirrel Hill about um, Irene Kaufman. It put her name up there. And um, I always pictured her as a little old lady with uh, maybe a long string of pearls uh, who had a lot of money and who gave, you know, very generously to the JCC. And I happened to go to the Squirrel Hill Historical Society where Barbara Burston was talking about one of her books. And she mentioned kind of in passing that um, this Irene Kaufman, whose name I was seeing all over, had, had killed herself at 19. And I, I, the whole room gasped. And, and then she said that Irene's mother had killed herself 10 years later. And another gasp from the room. And I kind of looked around and I thought, you know, this family has their name all over Pittsburgh, but people here don't seem to really know anything about the Kaufmans. And I kind of tucked that away. Uh, and then when Kaufmans was closing in 2015, um, and I was working at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, um, as a web developer, I, I thought this would make a good story, and I turned to my good colleague, Mary Lynn Pitts, with whom I'd worked a lot, and she covered art and architecture, which she still does, and I said, Mary Lynn, would you like to write this story? Do you think it'd be interesting? And she did, and the story was published, and um, all of a sudden, our emails blew up, and their co the yep. comment section blew yeah, up. Right. And um, we looked at the analytics for the page, and it got more page views than the Steelers that day. And if anything gets more page views than the Steelers, you know you're kind of on to something. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I said, we maybe we should pitch this to the University of Pittsburgh Press as a book, and the rest is history. Yeah. So we, we were writing about a family initially. Um, but, of course, you can't write about the Kaufmans without writing about no. their store. No, absolutely not. How did you divide up the, the writing? We didn't, really. We sat together, and we just kind of talked to one another. Yeah, we talked it through. We actually... Yeah. Um, we wrote in tandem. Yeah, we wrote in tandem. We spent a lot of time sitting at Laura's kitchen table, uh, talking and uh, drinking lots of tea. Drinking lots of tea. And, and, and coffee. And, <laughs> um, and uh, of course, you know, there's a tremendous amount of research involved because, um, you know, um, it's a big family. Uh, there were four brothers who started the, who were the principals of the enterprise, and uh, so it, you know, entailed a lot of uh, intensive research. Are our family archives centrally located somewhere? Did you have access to them? Well, the Kaufman's Department Store archives are at the Heinz History Center. So uh, Laura and I spent a lot of time there, um, looking through the store archives, looking through uh, images of window displays and. Uh, 
um, there, the Kaufmans uh, had a, a company newsletter called the Storagram, and that really served as a wonderful sort of guide through the store's history, although um, there isn't a complete run of it, so there were gaps. But um, it, it gave us a lot of uh, feeling and insight into what the atmosphere was like at Kaufman's. I, I think the family really tried to foster loyalty um, and a, sort of a, an esprit de corps among its employees so that, you know, people would, would stay. You know, they would retain their employees. They even had a, a, a club called the Standby Club where, you know, if you were a 20-year employee of the store, you had a special pin and, you know, it was, um, you know, it was a mark of uh, having arrived, Honor. I guess, as an employee there. In addition to that, you used to cover the courts. Yes. And so that allowed us to easily go to the court, the courthouse and find court cases that I don't think anybody ever reported on Probably. before. No, um, no. And we, we went and read almost every article we could find about, about the, the Kaufmans. Yeah. Um, and we uh, also looked further afield, searching for them, uh, putting in FOIA requests for different information. Right. So it, it was kind of all over the place. There isn't a real central repository of everything no. about the Kaufmans. No. Um, so we had to dig pretty, pretty deeply. We were able, one thing that was really helpful um, was that we were able to go to Falling Water, um, uh, the house that Edgar Kaufman and his wife commissioned Frank Lloyd Wright to build, and um, look through letters that had been written by uh, members of the Kaufman family, Edgar Kaufman, his wife Lillian, and their son, Edgar Jr. And um, that gave us a much better insight, I think, into the relationships between um, uh, mother and son and father and son, and, and also between Edgar and Lillian. They, they would have been the second generation. There were the four brothers, and then there was a second generation that consisted of one of the sons and one of the daughters of the founders who married each other, Edgar and Lillian. You know, one thing that we should point out is, is that um, Edgar Kaufman uh, Sr., Edgar Jonas Kaufman, married his first cousin, Lillian Kaufman. Um, and that was not unusual among uh, European Jews um, in the 19th century and earlier, but it was not uh, permissible in Pennsylvania at the time that they got married in 1909. So they had to take a special train to New York to get married. Um, and, of course, the guests who attended the wedding had to take a special train mm -hmm. to New York to attend the ceremony and the reception. Um, so um, my point is, is that uh, they were related, and um, Laura discovered something really interesting about uh, sort of what Lillian said to the press when she got there in New York. Uh, yeah, she said, there's no romance related to our getting married. We've known each other all our lives, and there's nothing special, uh, uh, romantic about our, our wedding unless you consider our taking a special train car up here, if you consider that to be special. So yeah. that was it. Uh, so really, what we take from that is that um, this marriage was really sort of engineered to keep uh, the business in the family so that um, um, this was something that uh, we discovered in our research. Uh, one of the descendants of the Kaufmans, Alfred Kaufman, uh, had given an oral history, and he talked mm -hmm. about the intense focus that the four founding brothers had in keeping the business mm -hmm. in the family. 
to the point where, you know, they had two first cousins <laughs> marry each other, and 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 the bride tells people, well, there's no romance associated <laughs> with this. So it's a very, you know, it's it's not what. Um, uh, we tend to think of now conventionally when two people get married. Let's let's go back to the beginning. Uh, where in Germany were they from? They were from Verenheim, Germany, which is not terribly far away, I guess, from Frankfurt, but um, it means fern home. Um, it's not a large area, uh, but they were the family had a monopoly on cattle dealing in in that part of that part of the world. Um, but their their prospects were very limited um, because of local rules um, and because they were Jewish, they, their, their prospects were very limited and there were some attacks against the Jewish community over the years. And so um, some of the young people uh, were left for the United States. Yeah. I think um, one of the things that um, I think continually, we talk about this now and then, Laura and I, one of the things that we find so amazing is, is that Jacob Kaufman was 19 years old when he arrived here, um, mm -hmm. and he immediately began peddling, um, walking um, along uh, country roads all over southwestern Pennsylvania, selling ribbons and needles and uh, sewing items uh, that you know women homemakers could use to sew their own clothing. Um, and of course, eventually, um, he graduated to having a wagon. But you know. Um, I can only imagine how difficult this was um, in an era where there was no such thing as a Sheets or a Starbucks. I mean, it's, you know, it sort of boggles the mind. Uh, he must have walked at least 10, 15 miles a day. Um, and this was the foundation of his business, basically. Uh, and it was only after doing this uh, for a couple of years that he was able to send for his brother, uh, Isaac, and they peddled together. And then they finally opened a store on the south side. So, uh, talk about sweat equity. Uh, you know that was hard, backbreaking work. It, it was, and that store was really no bigger than the back of a an eighteen wheeler truck. Right. It was yeah. a very tiny store. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> what did they sell at but the they, store? Um, they they sold bolts of cloth and, and um, some men's clothing. It was like any other little dry goods store, what they call notions, the little things you need to sew, the right. thread and the right. buttons and the ribbons. Um, they also sold to mill workers, too. They yeah, sold, they sold you, you, you know, because uh, the store on the south side was not far from the steel mills steel that mills, were yeah. operating then. And so they sort of had a ready-made clientele in that sense. Now, they would, in the 1870s, expand and start to build uh, different stores in the city. Uh, were they catering to different clientele as they built these different stores? We haven't heard that they were. Um, they, they closed the other stores pretty quickly and focused on downtown. Right. And initially, downtown, they, their store was more of a um, discount palace. You know, they yeah. focused on... Right. on you know, what you could get for your money. Right. It was initially, um, uh, it was called Kaufman's Cheapest Corner. And um, I think they were definitely a discount retailer in the right. beginning. Um, and um, it was only later um, in the, I would say, the, uh, at the as the century turned and Edgar Kaufman Sr. took over, 
Then the store really began to offer um, very high quality merchandise. Right, and they became the taste makers. They became taste makers here, and people really um, learned to look to the store for uh, the latest fashions from Europe, uh, the latest in, uh, uh, you know, fabrics, all kinds of decorative objects. The store itself uh, was um, like an art gallery in a sense. Now, during this time we period, you begin to see uh, department stores developing and uh, how, how did they become involved in that, moving beyond clothing and, and just starting to sell a variety of goods? It, it, was, it was the trend. Um, department stores were just kind of breaking in in the, I, I guess, the 18, between the 1870s and the 1880s. Mm -hmm. So they just happened to open their store at, at a wonderful time uh, to catch the crest of this wave. And they were so astute that they were um, on the cutting edge of the wave, on the very edge. Uh, so they, you know, your initial department store would have been um, all dark wood, dark paint. Um, everything would kept, be kept locked up in cabinets. And if the customer wanted something, they'd have to ask, I'd like to see that. And the, the clerk would unlock it. Right. show it to them, and then the clerk would sort of size up the customer. I realize I'm not really answering your question, mm -hmm. Phil, but this is interesting. Um, no, go the, ahead. The, the, the clerk would size up the customer and say, I wonder what this person can pay, can afford to pay for this item. And then they would dicker, they would bargain, right. you know, yeah. and eventually settle on a price. But um, uh, the one individual who, who worked, who started Selfridges in London had pioneered this idea of a price tag, one price for, for, for all, one price uh, for a good for all customers. And the, the, the Kaufman brothers, the four brothers, were very astute, and they latched on to that early and advertised that they only had one price for each of their, their items. So they, they were just very observant about business trends, and they implemented them very quickly. and. Um, and that is how they, they found success in the late 19th century. Yeah. I think, too, um, one of the things that really helped them early on was the fact of their location. Uh, they were right downtown on Smithfield Street, which meant that they were very accessible uh, to the tens and thousands, the thousands of uh, mill workers and immigrants who had come to uh, Pittsburgh to work in the mills and the mines, and who, uh, once they had gotten their weekly pay, uh, went downtown on the uh, trolley to uh, spend it. Um, and one of the things that Kaufman's did in that regard that was really smart was they had a foreign department with people who spoke um, a whole range of languages, um, not just German and French, but uh, Italian and Serbo-Croatian and uh, you name it. Um, they, you know, catered to uh, people who were not just from Western Europe, but also from Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, they even had a part uh, in the basement where they, um, they advertised in, in a local Italian uh, written newspaper about, uh, we want you to visit our Basamento um, and read our Italian newspapers at your convenience. Uh, but they also used these interpreters to help people shop. So um, the idea of the personal shopper and interpreter 
was a really smart idea. Now, uh, there was a sign outside that said, meet under the clock. Uh, can you talk about the clock and what significance it had? Um, the clock was just, um, well, we have a picture of it here. Yeah, we have a picture. <laughs> here it is. You can see it is held up by two brawny individuals um, in bronze. And uh, it was just very visible. It was on the corner of, um, uh, I want to say, Smithfield and Fifth. Fifth. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just a real landmark. So, so people um, would say, meet me under the clock. Uh, and that just became a saying, and, and it, it became sort of a, a beloved landmark, and people would remember meeting their dates there, meeting their parents there, meeting their siblings and their friends there. When the Pirates won the World Series, people gathered at the clock and climbed up the clock. Um, when a politician said, uh, meet me under the clock, and I'll, I forget the phrase, but more <laughs> or less, um, it, it meant... Uh, We'll save that anecdote for a different time. <laughs> <laughs> um, at any rate, um, the clock um, the clock had a lot of significance to people because it um, first of all um, it was made by a company in New York called Caldwell Clock, and this clock company um, made clocks for people like Andrew Carnegie. Henry Clay Frick, you know, the, the industrial titans of their day. So when Kaufman's put that clock up, uh, this was actually their second clock in mm -hmm. 1913, um, they were saying to people, this is a place of quality. You know, we are timeless. We are going to be here. Um, and, you know, it really is, it's a phenomenal uh, landmark because of its beauty and its timelessness. Um, and also, you know, people um, in in the early part of the 20th century, not everybody walked around wearing a wristwatch simply because they couldn't afford it. So um, being able to tell time and making sure that you met someone uh, at the right time, at the right place, um, that's that's another reason that it was uh, so popular here. Now, you tell the story in the book. You know, in Philadelphia... In Philadelphia, I just want to point out, sorry to interrupt, I just want to point out that Kaufman's was doing something that other department stores mm -hmm. did in that, you know, like if you went to Wanamaker's in Philadelphia, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you would say to your, uh, the person you were meeting, meet me under the eagle. So um, Kaufman's wasn't the only department store that did this, but they certainly did it in a first-rate way. Now, one of the stories you tell in the book is about uh, promotional uh, event that they had where they were throwing free clothing off the roof. Uh, it almost had a riot. What happened? Well, they thought it would be a wonderful idea. Um, I forget the year, but it was in the early part of the 20th century right. to advertise that they were going to give away free clothes at such and such a time, 7.30 in the middle of winter. So I think it was winter. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And so uh, a big crowd gathered because clothes were expensive at that time and people were mostly poor. So they gathered below, and rather than just handing out these parcels, the employees of the store would, they open the windows and they throw the parcels out the, out the window. And the crowd would descend on the parcels and fight over them, and kids were getting crushed, and they were crying and losing their parents, and the police had to put down this near riot. Yeah. Uh, they basically had to had to stop the promotion in the middle. In the of middle it. of it, yeah. yeah. So 
Yeah, it was not not their finest hour. <laughs> uh, the Kaufmans went from being peddlers to being millionaires during the Gilded Age. Uh, were they were they living it up like Gilded Age millionaires did? Did they live in mansions? They did. They each had their own mansion. Two of them were in Squirrel Hill along Beacon Street. Um, one was at the corner of Whiteman. One was at the corner of Murdoch. They don't exist anymore. Um, they advertised all the places that they were going on vacations to Sarasota Springs and Paris and Germany. And they, when they were available at home to accept callers. And they had parties with all kinds of uh, favors for the, the party goers. Um, that were reported in the paper, just like their uh, wealthy Protestant neighbors, and they were listed in the Blue Book, um, and they lived in all the best places. Um, so, yes, they, they, they were living like Gilded Age uh, millionaires. I should, I should add, uh, Phil, that um, the, while the, the home of um, uh, Morris Kaufman uh, which was in Squirrel Hill, no longer stands. The home that Jacob Kaufman built on the north side is a, sort of a beautiful uh, red Richardsonian Romanesque building, and it's still there. It's actually on Brighton Road. Um, uh, it's a big, long structure. Um, and they, you know, they all had servants. Uh, they owned cars back mm -hmm. when a lot of Americans did not own cars. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, they, they had really basically climbed to the top in the space of about, I'd say, 25 years. Yes, yeah. very quickly. Mm -hmm. Now, the Kaufmans also helped establish the Concordia Club. What was that? Well, they, they were Jewish, so they were not allowed to go to the Duquesne Club and the places where the other uh, Scottish Presbyterians uh, socialized, like Frick and Carnegie. So they had to form their own uh, social club, which they called the Concordia. It started on the north side, and then they moved it to what is now the campus of Pitt. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, they, they didn't have need of it anymore. Um, but uh, uh, yes, they had this club. And initially, they blackballed anybody who had a profession that they didn't approve of. Yes, which would include, say, uh, being a pawnbroker, for yeah, example. Yeah, they, they thought that was sort of low rent. Low, low class, low yeah. class. But then they realized they were doing to one another what was being done to them. So yes. they, they stopped doing that. And that's where you had your weddings and your banquets and your bar and bat mitzvahs. I guess it was just bar mitzvahs then. Right. Yeah. Were they involved in philanthropy? Very involved. You oh, my talk God. talk about some of them? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, you know, that's the thing I think that really um, is wonderful about um, what how they gave back to the community. Um, you know, we're doing this interview and it's summer, it's July here in Pittsburgh. And um, uh, actually, Laura's son is at Camp uh, Emma Kaufman, which is down at Cheat Lake in, in, West uh, in West Virginia. It's near Morgantown, West Virginia. And that was actually funded by uh, the fortune of Isaac Kaufman, one of the founding brothers. Um, and then um, they also, uh, Funded um, uh, Henry Kaufman uh, funded a whole bunch, a, a whole series of outdoor camps for children in the state of New York. That's right. um, so, and then of course they were big supporters of the Jewish community. Um, the JCC that we know today in Squirrel Hill was an outgrowth of uh, the 
the uh, charity that they um, raised from the community and contributed to the community. So uh, then, of course, there's a, a hospital uh, here in Pittsburgh, Montefiore Hospital, and the School of Nursing was named for Lillian Kaufman. That's right. Um, so they were extraordinarily generous people. In addition to that, Edgar, uh, later on, was very influential in um, the shaping of the point, as it now looks. Yes. And he funded initially the Civic Light Orchestra, the, our, our opera. opera. Yeah, now we call it the Pittsburgh CLO. The Pittsburgh CLO. And the building of the Civic Arena. Of course, it doesn't stand anymore, but um, that was the place where the CLO initially uh, performed. Um, so, uh, and they built Falling Water, which is arguably, I guess, the most famous house in the country. And it's now been donated, you know, to the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy so anybody can see it. So they were very involved with philanthropy and, and both generations, the older generation of immigrants and the second generation. Yeah. They were always giving away things at Christmas to all the children, right. um, clothing and candy. Um, they were giving away trees to, to teach children civic responsibility to plant the trees and make the place more beautiful. Um, they were just always trying to promote whatever they could with philanthropy, much of which is sort of lost today. Now, you mentioned Irene Kaufman earlier, and there's something called the Irene Kaufman Settlement. What, what is that? Well, the Irene Kaufman Settlement was uh, basically... Um, uh, part of a movement of settlement houses mm -hmm. in the country. Um, in New York, there was the Henry Street Settlement House, and in Chicago, there was the famous Hull House. Uh, women here in the Jewish community started something called the Columbian School, and out of that grew uh, an effort to educate these waves of immigrants who kept coming to Pittsburgh to essentially um, assimilate them, help them to become good American citizens, and also to help them gain their citizenship. So if you were a child growing up um, in the early 1900s here in Pittsburgh and you lived in the Hill District, or anywhere for that matter, it didn't matter what your uh, social or economic background was or your race, you could go to the Irene Kaufman Center, or the Irene Kaufman Settlement House, and you could be uh, you could learn um, how to swim. Uh, they had acting classes, drawing classes, painting classes. Um, you um, could learn to, how to be an American citizen so that you could pass your citizenship test. Uh, children were fed uh, milk from the milk well. There were, a lot of these children came from poor families, and so they weren't all that well nourished. Um, there was a nurse who lived at the settlement house named Anna Heldman who um, actually um, learned how to communicate with people who lived in the Hill District. She learned how to speak Yiddish so that could, she could speak to many of the mothers and help educate them about the way to uh, care for their children. So the settlement house was really a very holistic approach to helping refugees um, improve their lives at a very basic level, mm -hmm. but it gave them sort of a rung up um, uh, to uh, achieving their own American dream. Now, with four brothers involved in the family business, uh, as the next generation was coming along, how did they decide how to pass it on and keep it in the family? 
Um, well, <laughs> that was a that was a complicated uh, scenario for this this family. I'm going to let Laura tell that one. Well, mm. it, it was both easy and not so easy. Uh, there are four brothers, and the oldest brother had five sons. So you would think perhaps there would be some disagreement over which of those five, or perhaps those five and and the sons of one of the other brothers. Uh, but what happened was the oldest brother died first. And under an agreement that the other, the, the four of them had made, when one brother died, the other three would buy out his share from, from his heirs. And when they tried to do that, um, the oldest brother's widow was very unhappy. She said, you aren't paying me what you're supposed to pay me. You're shorting me. And she sued them, and she lost. And as a result, that whole family was very discontented, and they they left the store, and they started their own store. I want to say two blocks down the road yes. uh, to compete with Kaufman's head to head. Um, so they were obviously not in the running to take over Kaufman's once the remaining three brothers died. Of of the next generation, um, Irene was gone already. Uh, there was an, uh, one brother had just one daughter, and the other brother had two sons and two daughters. And the oldest son was a real handsome devil, very smart, um, very charismatic. And it was obvious that he should be the next anointed one. So it wasn't all that diff difficult to decide who was going to be the next one in line. Mm -hmm. And of course, I think um, we should add that. Edgar Kaufman, uh, the charismatic uh, and uh, smart uh, son of Morris Kaufman, married his first cousin, Lillian, thereby sort of consolidating um, his uh, ownership of the business. Because when he married Lillian Kaufman, he got her share of That's the right. business. So um, it was um, not just a marriage of blood, it was a marriage of business. So. I think um, also uh, Kaufman, uh, the, the Kaufmans who went down the street to build their own store built a store called Kaufman and Bayer. Um, now today we know that building as the Heinz 57 Center. Uh, uh, another generation of Pittsburghers remember it as the, the Gimbel's building because it, for a time Gimbel's was there. Um, but that, was that building was originally put up by um, the descendants of Jacob Kaufman. And they spent a boatload of money to put it up, too. It did not, uh, they did not do as well as uh, Kaufman's. They did not last very long before Gimbel's took them over. Right. Yeah. yeah. Was Edgar groomed for the position? Did he start at the bottom and work his way up? How, how did that work? He was definitely groomed for the position. Um, he was sent to Shadyside Academy. He was sent to Yale. Um, he had uh, he worked for a time in Connellsville. Mm -hmm. He he um, also did time. He also had excuse me. Mm -hmm. um, he also spent time in Europe working okay. at um, uh, two uh, excellent department stores. One is called Karstadt's in Germany, um, and actually for a time he he did work at Marshall Fields in Chicago, um, but he was a shipping clerk uh, early on. Um, 
in, at Kaufman's, and we there's a picture, a famous picture of him driving a car right. that belonged to Kaufman's, doing deliveries. So he did work in various departments before all of them, all of them, all of them yeah, yeah, before he took over um, the leadership of the store. So um, he was very well groomed, I think, for the position. Now the the family seemed to care a lot about the design of the store and, and the value of interior design. What what did that mean to them? Well, Edgar and Lillian always wanted the best of everything. Yes. And when they redesigned the store in 1930, they wanted it to be no, no expense spared. Um, so they, they ended up designing sort of an Art Deco palace uh, filled with pale, pale wood cabinets set at di diagonals and pillars of black Italian Carrera marble and or glass glass and um, and uh, these they commissioned these special um, murals to go on the walls high above there are ten murals um, very colorful um, actually you 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 know a good deal about these yeah. murals yeah. Um, well the um, the murals were uh, basically a history of commerce in the world, um, starting you know back in ancient times and going all the way through to uh, um, you know the last mural basically portrayed a city that looked very much like Pittsburgh. Um, so and they were um, when the store opened, um, looking like this in 1930, um, it was. Um, acclaimed as one of the most beautiful department stores in the world. Um, so they uh, hired one of the best architects of the day, Benno Jansen, um, to design the building. And, um, and then they, um, they just spared no expense. Edgar Kaufman went off to Europe with his wife in the late, I think it was the late 1920s, and said, um, when I return, I plan to give Pittsburgh the finest department store I can give it. Um, so uh, he basically went out on a scouting tour to Europe to see how windows were designed there and what kind of ex uh, what kind of uh, goods were on offer, so that um, you know he could uh, say that uh, he was giving Pittsburgh the very best. Now you also write in the book about the, their window displays and how in the 1890s they started hiring window dressers and that created a new profession. Uh, well, why were these window displays so significant? Um, well, they were enormous windows. They weren't, of course, the only department stores that had these windows. Every department store had huge windows to advertise what they had on display. Um, they sort of competed. They they would. It, it was it was artists, you know, in in their in their environment. You know, they they. Uh, designed the windows with a lot of thought. They looked at other department stores' windows. Um, and at Christmas time, they would really go all out. They spent a whole year thinking of what they're gonna, going to have each year for the Christmas displays. And they had to order parts from a special company that made the little figures. Um, in the beginning, you had to have a person turning a crank to make the figures work. Later on, of course, they ran with electricity. Right. And um, yeah. they were, it, was, it was very exciting. Most people remember going downtown to see the Christmas window displays at all the department stores. It was just very exciting. Before the car, most people were walking along the street, and windows 
window displays commanded a lot of attention. Yeah. When you're in a car, of course, you just zip right by and you don't really notice. Now, those windows were a really powerful form of, I think, creating a sense of wonder and intrigue. Um, um, we talked to several window dressers who, um, you know, they would uh, scrounge around for all kinds of material. Um, you know, uh, they would um, uh, work with mannequins. Um, and uh, those, those uh, windows were huge. They, they were not heated and they were not cooled. <laughs> so it was not the best environment to work in when you were you know, trying to arrange things very carefully so that you uh, use the windows to tell a story. Um, but I think uh, it, it really became an art form unto itself. Um, and that's why uh, people flocked downtown. They, they wanted to be entertained and they wanted to um, you know, see the Nutcracker or uh, Cinderella or um, the traditions of Christmas, whatever the, the, the likely theme was for the year. So um, in, the, in the early days of this, they would actually, they had a young woman dressed up in a costume um, and she would uh, tap on the exterior of the building and they would open wide the velvet windows to reveal uh, what was in the windows or the velvet curtains that, that shielded the displays. So it was, um, there was a lot of uh, drama associated with it. Um, and I think it was very smart on their part. It was smart marketing. Now in the 1920s, which you describe as the, the golden age of, of the department store, uh, it, it seems like it was the kind of place where it had restaurants and, and all kinds of different features. If you walked in there and spent hours, what, what would you be doing? What, could you, what would you see? It might be closer to say, what wouldn't you see? What couldn't you do? <laughs> right. There were all kinds of restaurants from high-end taste to just a, a light lunch or just standing and eating a hot dog or just getting a piece of candy. There were bargains in the basement. There were appliances you could buy. You could buy radios. You could buy televisions. You could buy clothing that was fancy, clothing that was not so fancy. You could buy house dresses. You could buy watches. You could get your watch repaired. You could go... Uh, to a travel agency. You could buy books, you could buy toys, you could buy um, furniture. They had a whole furniture department. You could take a look at what kinds of houses they were probably going to have in the future. On the roof, they had displays of futuristic houses. Um, I'm trying to think what other departments they had. We had just like whole paragraphs of, of departments alph alphabetically listed. Right. It just went on and on and on. It, it was not like what you see at today's malls, where the department store, quote unquote, just has like a few goods. You know, they have clothing, they have accessories, and, and they have some plates and, and sheets and curtains on the third floor. No, this had all that plus more. Plus, they were like a self-contained almost city. They had their own carpenters. They had their own artists. They had their own poster makers, um, their own designers. They, they were self-sufficient. Yeah. Um, so it was very exciting, I think, to go to a downtown department store and see yeah. everything that they had. Yeah, they're, they're really, one of the things they did early on, too, was is that they caught this whole wave of uh, having fashion shows, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Kaufman's had an auditorium, and um, they would—they uh, started on putting fashion shows. I think as early as maybe 1918, uh, but certainly by the 20s, they were showing fashion shows on a regular basis. 
And, um, you know, that was just a, a, another way to promote what they were selling. So um, uh, it was, you know, it was a, um, a very entertaining way for a woman to spend her day. She could go to um, a fashion show. She could have lunch. She could shop for clothes. Um, that's, uh, they, they did everything possible to keep people in the store as long as possible. Oh, they would take care of your child. They also would yeah. take care of your they, child. Yeah. They, they, they had people who would take care of your child, and they had cribs where your little one could, could rest. Right. And so they made sure that you were free to spend your money here. Yeah. <laughs> How did Kaufman treat, uh, treat its employees? Um, they were always trying to be on the cutting edge of uh, employee benefits and um, trying to, it, it was a paternalistic attitude that um, prevailed at that time. They wanted their employees to have uh, everything and more. They, they wanted to treat their employees well. They even offered up their property in Fayette County as like a weekend retreat for employees mm -hmm. that, you, that could be had for a couple of dollars. They charged a little more for managers. Um, they, they gave vacations. They, they gave discounts. They, they had rest rooms where employees could just rest. They had restaurants, uh, lunch rooms, cafeterias that were just for employees. Um, they also had special funds where you could you could apply if you really needed some money, and they had a special fund for you. They provided a lawyer on site that you could consult for free. Um, they had dentists on site for their employees, doctors on site for their employees. Um, so they, they were really trying to be very generous to their employees. Now, one of the, the most famous things that, uh, that Edgar is known for is, is a house by Frank Lloyd Wright, Falling Water. Uh, how, how did that come about? How did he get to know Frank Lloyd Wright? Well, Edgar um, had a son, uh, uh, Edgar Jr., and Edgar Jr. had uh, spent time in Europe uh, pursuing a career as a painter. He came back here in the um, early, early 1930s, um, and um, he was kind of at loose ends. He was here in Pittsburgh for a while, um, and he read... Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's autobiography. Um, and that's what made him decide to uh, go and study as a fellow at Taliesin in um, Wisconsin. Um, which and, is Frank Lloyd Wright's. Which is Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, uh, home, which that's where Wright lived at the time. And um, so uh, his father and mother came to visit. Mm -hmm. And um, that's um, when uh, Edgar Kaufman Sr met Frank Lloyd Wright, and um, I think that uh, they were very similar in a lot of ways. They were risk-takers, they were uh, uh, men who wanted to accomplish things, and uh, I think Edgar uh, saw in Wright somebody he could trust as an architect and uh, hired him uh, to um, uh, build a falling water, and I think the house Construction started in 1936, so this was at the height of the Depression. Um, but um, it was um, a very difficult construction project. Um, I think uh, Edgar had to draw on all of his diplomacy to deal with Wright, because Wright could be very imperious and uh, difficult. Um, but I think what, you know, the great thing is, is that they took that risk 
And now, you know, uh, Western Pennsylvania is the home of arguably one of the most famous houses in the world. It, it, and it's, it's architecture. It's a very dramatic-looking house where it looks as though the, the waterfall of Bear Run is actually coming out of the house, which has um, unsupported what they call cantilevered balconies that extend out over the stream. Um, they look like they're unsupported at any rate. Right. And it seems to be part of the environment of, of the, the mountain and the, the stream. So it's a dramatic-looking house um, that, that really incorporates nature into its design. Now, at one point after the Second World War, uh, the uh, Kaufmans would be sold to the May Company. Uh, why did they decide to sell it to another, another company rather than keep it in the family? I think that was a really difficult moment for Edgar Kaufman, Sr. Um, Edgar Kaufman relied on his brother-in-law, I.D. Wolf, uh, for running the daily uh, business of the store. But um, he also, uh, he could have uh, turned the store over to I.D., or he could have turned the store over to another Kaufman family member named John Wolf. Um, and in the end, he decided uh, he didn't want to have to make that choice. He didn't want to have to choose between two family members. So um, he sold the store to the May Company in 1946, but retained the role as president, um, which um, allowed him to, to still have sort of a, a civic platform, at, if you will, um, and um, um, a role as a civic leader in Pittsburgh. Uh, but um, I think the store um, lost a lot when um, it, it became part of a, a, you know, a larger corporate entity. Um, I think uh, Laura and I have talked about this uh, many times, and I think the, probably the best part of the store's years were from, like, maybe 1900 to 1946. Mm -hmm. um, and, and while there was still a lot of fun and a lot of great merchandise that came uh, around from 46 to the 80s. Um, I think, you know, the best years were when Edgar and Lillian were in charge because they were tastemakers and they really um, strove to give their customers the very best. Now, in the years after the Second World War, uh, America was becoming more suburbanized as people moved outside of cities. How did that affect a, a store that, that was centered in, in the downtown of Pittsburgh? Well, the, the family, the remaining family members and the old timers did not want to move into malls. They saw themselves as kind of a self-contained mall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yep. they initially built self-contained stores in Monroeville and in Mount Lebanon. The Galleria is the former Kaufman store. Yep. Um, and. Uh, it took them a long time to accept that there was just so much foot traffic in malls that they had best just open up as an anchor within the malls. So they came to that a little bit late. They ended up buying three Gimbel's properties that were in the malls and that were being closed. So they re refurbished these former Gimbel's locations as Kaufman locations. I think that um, one of the reasons that um, maybe the Kaufmans weren't uh, so quick to um, 
you know, Joseph Horn Company, which was one of their big competitors, went out and had a suburban store, I think, as early as the mid-1940s. Um, I think that's when they opened their first suburban store. But Kaufman's was very late to this, mostly because downtown to them was where uh, the most business was. And so I think it, it just it took them a while to see that their customers did not want to drive all the way into downtown Pittsburgh mm -hmm. and pay for parking when they could go and have free parking at a mall. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, they were, they, they were sort of late to that trend. What was Kaufman's relationship with uh, trade unions? Well, I think it, um, <laughs> it was difficult, I think, at times, uh, because the the thing that most people remember is that uh, there was a terrible strike in the, in the 1950s uh, when the Teamsters, um, which uh, the Teamsters Union almost every year, right before Christmas, would demand some kind of raise. And of course, um, that's the time of the year when the store would do its best business. Um, and there was a terrible strike in the 1950s because the Teamsters were demanding that they have two men on every delivery truck. Um, no, see, at that time they would deliver your parcels to you. To you, right. And they were demanding, even if the parcel were little, tiny, you know, that, that two men must be. On the yeah. truck, yeah. yeah. Really, it was, it was really, I think, a gross overreach by the Teamsters. I mean, they were basically feather bedding, um, which is, um, you know, something that the stores just weren't going to put up with. So it resulted in a very long strike. It was actually the longest department store strike in the nation's history. I think it was about 18, 19 months. I mean, it got so bad that uh, uh, certain unions uh, in the city wouldn't cross the picket lines, and so Kaufman's wound up um, storing its trash on the roof of its building. So um, I do think that, by and large, I think Kaufman did its best to negotiate and, and, and offer raises and, and uh, be fair. But I think that strike uh, created a lot of bitterness, and it took a long time for that to uh, dissipate. And the 50s were a time when a lot of unions were striking, including the trolleys and the electric company. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, these were violent strikes where uh, they might, they might shoot paint at, at a manager's uh, house. They might shoot through the window of the manager's house. Um, they would beat up uh, non-union labor. Um, and, and the Kaufman's employees would support these strikes and not, not cross the picket line. Yep. And in at least one case, there were uh, fistfights and shoving that broke out near, near the entrance of Kaufman's. Because uh, people were, you know, they, their tempers were short. Yeah. Um, so, Kaufman's did try to to get along with the unions, but yeah, all the department stores faced uh, strikes. When did the downtown location close? Two thousand and fifteen. It was in September of that year, two thousand and fifteen, and um, um, I think you know. For most people, that was really, um, you know, uh, city leaders like uh, the mayor and others weighed in and said, you know, it's a sad day for downtown Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, 
one of the things that's uh, sort of gratifying to see is that the building is now going to be reused. I mean, it already has had a restaurant in it and an even hotel in it for some time, but now Target is going to move in. And, um, you know, it'll be good to see business come back to life in that stretch of downtown on Smithfield Street. Um, I think for most people who have grown up here in western Pennsylvania, um, no one ever referred to that building as Macy's. No. Uh, Macy's might have put its name on the building, but to generations of Pittsburghers, that has always been Kaufman's. Um, so, um, and you know, the clock is still there, and so um, I just, you know, some things people in this town just, you know, they call it, they call it Kaufman's. It's so ironic that what's moving in are discounters, discounters to Kaufman's, which right. had a boutique on its top floor that sold designer dresses. Right. Now right. it's going to be Target in Burlington. So that's, that's sort of an, that's an irony. When you were doing your research uh, for this book, uh, did you discover anything that, that really surprised you, something that, that you uh, thought was really interesting? I think we've, we've talked about some of the things that we found. We're trying to keep the good, the, a few of those nuggets back. <laughs> <laughs> I think one uh, of the things that um, I really, uh, uh, the, one of the things that really impressed me was Lillian Kaufman. Mm -hmm. um, Lillian Kaufman, you know, came of age in the Gilded Age um, as a young woman, um, but uh, she was a tremendous help to Edgar Kaufman in keeping the store um, uh, at its best. It was her idea to open this uh, designer salon called the Von Dome. Uh, she would go to Paris and she would buy merchandise for it. Um, she actually started the Von Dome as a way to employ people who were unemployed during the 1930s. Uh, she designed jewelry, she designed clothing, and she had uh, craftspeople make, make those uh, pieces and sold them initially in the Von Dome. And then the, the store just took out, from, uh, took, uh, the, the boutique just took off from there. There was a special elevator in Kaufman's that you took to go straight to the Von Dome. Um, she was um, she was someone who really came into her own. She was a volunteer for decades at uh, Montefiore Hospital. She uh, during World War One and uh, later she was uh, very involved at Mercy Hospital as a volunteer. After that, she's the only woman who ever uh, spent nine years as the head of the board of Montefiore Hospital. So. She was a force to be reckoned with in her own right. Um, I, I really came away with a profound sense of admiration for her, not just as a woman who uh, found her mission in life and her purpose, but also uh, somebody who gave back to the community in hours of volunteer work. Were you able to interview any survivors in, in the family uh, on the book? Not, uh, no, not direct descendants, no. Um, but we were able to make use of oral histories um, that uh, we found at the Heinz History Center as well as family letters. Um, there, there was one direct descendant, but he's directly descendant from a um, illegitimate uh, child. So he knew nothing about the family. And the, the, like, as we said, Edgar and Lillian just had one child. He did not have any children. So any descendants would be, I guess, the grand, 
the grandchildren or perhaps the great-grandchildren of people of Edgar and Lillian's cohort, and they would not live in Pittsburgh. They, they would not know very much about right. what had happened yeah. at the store. Yeah. Yeah. We've been speaking with Mary Lynn Pitts and Laura Malt-Schneiderman. They are the authors of Kaufman's, The Family That Built Pittsburgh's Famed Department Store. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.